we stabilized throughout the last several months, uh, but the Delta variant is in Philadelphia. It, it is showing up. Uh, we are admitting uh, uh, patients and, and when they're sequenced, the, the majority of the patients being admitted have the Delta variant. The, the good news and, and a, a theme that we will continue to talk about is those people who've been vaccinated, uh, although they're presenting to the emergency room, they often don't get admitted and, and we're able to treat them, uh, you know, on the, so they're, they're sick, but they're not, it's not like we went through the last, uh, the first two waves. Welcome to the A&M Global Podcast Series, addressing business concerns we face today. Join A&M's healthcare industry group as they talk to health system CEOs on their journey in the post-COVID-19 world. In part two of our series, hear how health system CEOs weathered the pandemic storm and what is happening now. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Larry Kaiser, a managing director with Alvarez and Marcel, and uh, we're very pleased to have some distinguished guests with us uh, for this podcast. I'd like to go ahead and um, and introduce them, uh, starting first with Kevin Mahoney, who's the chief executive officer for the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Kevin assumed this role in July of 2019. Next, we're joined by Suresh Ganesakaran, who's the associate vice president of the University of Iowa Healthcare and chief executive officer of the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. He assumed this role in November of 2018. Last but certainly not least, Rick Zoll, our lawyer tonight, who's a partner and chair of King and Spalding's healthcare transactional and regulatory practice. He represents clients on both transactional and regulatory healthcare matters, including advising healthcare operating companies, private equity investors and lenders on M&A joint ventures, financings and complex commercial transactions. Received his undergraduate degree from Brown University and his JD from NYU. Also joined tonight by my colleague, Marta Haverkamp, who is joining us tonight from the south of France, where it is midnight or a little after midnight. And Martha certainly is also um, one of the uh, directors with us um, in the uh, in Alvarez and Marcel. So, Kevin, with the Delta variant now the most prevalent, what are you seeing in your own institution? Um, you know, around the country right now, we're seeing a significant increase in cases, and and you certainly uh, had uh, a significant number. What are you seeing now? Yeah. So, um, Larry, we. We stabilized throughout the last several months, uh, but the Delta variant is in Philadelphia. It, it is showing up. Uh, we are admitting uh, uh, patients and, and when they're sequenced, the, the majority of the patients being admitted have the Delta variant. The, the good news and, and a, a theme that we will continue to talk about is those people who've been vaccinated, uh, although they're presenting to the emergency room, they often don't get admitted and, and we're able to treat them, uh, you know, on the, so they're, they're sick, but they're not, it's not like we went through the last, uh, the first two waves. And, and so we, we continue to push hard on the vaccination. You have a separate unit for these patients now, or are you able just to uh, put them in separate rooms and, um, and isolate them as such? Yeah, the latter. Uh, we're, yeah. we're down to, uh, you know, an average daily census across the system of less than 50, that's six hospitals. So, some have zero, but nobody has uh, generally has more than than ten or twelve. So uh, we we do no no longer have a separate COVID unit. Any sense of what we're seeing in the region uh, with the other hospitals uh, in the Philadelphia area? Uh, extremely similar, um, uh, and 
You know, we've been blessed in Philadelphia. We've not taken the waves that uh, New York and Houston and other others have. We've certainly been hit hard, but not not like our colleagues. And we're hoping to keep it that way. And Suresh, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing um, at the University of Iowa uh, Hospital um, and as well as what what's going on in the region. Um, we haven't um, had as systematic of an approach uh, to whole genome sequencing. So um, we have uh, only recently done a substantial amount of the testing for the Delta variant. And the activity appears to be uh, very limited at this time compared to uh, others across the country. However, um, we are the state's only academic medical center, and we've made a pretty, maintained a pretty consistent COVID census over the last couple of months of, of you know, five to 10 to 15 patients. And most of them uh, are from communities where the vaccination rate is low. The patients themselves have not been vaccinated. And so we see a pretty high correlation between lack of vaccination and uh, serious uh, COVID illness. And so uh, we, we continue to, to, to see the same uh, correlation uh, that uh, Kevin was mentioning in, in uh, Philadelphia. But overall, we've not seen a spike. And so we are not presently seeing much of an increase, uh, but we are watching neighboring states that have some concerning trends. So uh, we are closely watching Missouri and particularly the northeastern part of Missouri, um, which borders us um, pretty uh, intensely. Um, uh, But uh, in terms of our own facility in our own state, uh, it's actually remained relatively stable. And do you have a sense for the percentage of uh, people in Iowa who've been vaccinated or fully vaccinated? Um, Iowa actually had a really successful uh, vaccination campaign out of the gate. And so in the first, you know, couple of months, uh, I was was in the top five in terms of vaccination rate. I would say right now we're probably at uh, just uh, about 60 percent statewide. Um, the county that we're in, Johnson County uh, in, in Iowa, is substantially higher than that. Uh, but uh, overall, statewide, it's about 60 percent. And the origin, the initial surge that you had at its peak, how did you handle that? How, how was that best handled uh, at the University of Iowa? It was painful. Um, so we we went through three surges, the third of which was the most substantial in the October-November timeframe. It required us to open about 100 uh, temporary beds as uh, dedicated COVID units um, and caused us to uh, shut down a substantial amount of our ORs and clinics and divert staff to staff these dedicated COVID units. Uh, it was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of dedication on the part of a, a lot of clinical personnel that, that you know put the patient first. But uh, after that process, we've uh, thankfully been able to return to normal operations and and move past and uh, this entire calendar year, we have not seen um, significant volumes at all actually uh, in Iowa and we've been very, very lucky. In fact, uh, the only reason we really see um, uh, COVID patients these days is being the tertiary quaternary center for uh, Iowa. We have some of those complex patients with a significant respiratory syndrome uh, that needs to be dealt with in a, in a kind of complex setting like we have. So. Um, I would say overall, the state has also done very well this calendar year. Mm-hmm. And any idea how many of your frontline workers were infected during the um, during the the peak? Uh, so we have forty two thousand 
uh, employees, and and I think the number is probably 3,500, 3,600, uh, somewhere around that 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 number. We we know of no confirmed in hospital contact. It, you know, we went through tracing. It was usually back to a a family member, back to a, a perhaps somebody who didn't follow the rules quite the way we had asked yeah. them to, and and did some uh, did some travel. Um, and, but, in, and in and in terms of ability to obtain um, personal protective equipment, any issues there that that you had during the um, uh, during the, the the peak? No, Larry. Thanks for that question. Um, you know, we we set out. We we talked about the three P's from the beginning: protect our patients, uh, protect our finances, and protect our employees. And at the peak, we had seven full time equivalents doing nothing but tracking down. Uh, PPE across the the country and the globe, and um, we did recycling of N95s using the FDA approved uh, a device. But I, I am proud to say that we didn't put any employee in harm's way, and that they they had the proper uh, whether it was a PAP or an N95 uh, uh, gowns. Um, and we we got great support uh, as Sharice was saying, um, you know, as an academic medical center. The vet school, the dental school, the nursing, like they sent all of their PPE supplies to us when, when we shut down during the surge. So we're, we were quite fortunate. And in terms of staffing issues, did you have any issues? Did you have to use travelers? Um, any issues with staffing, especially, for instance, at the hospital, at the University of Pennsylvania? At, at the, at the, we, we have not had to use travelers uh, during this time. And, and I, I am, I am blessed. Philadelphia is blessed with a workforce that just, wouldn't quit, and and whether it was faculty, housekeeping, nurses, and uh, you know we we were quite fortunate. We're we're and I'm sure our other guests can talk about it. We're now suffering a little bit of COVID fatigue, and yeah. you know pe- people have they weren't able to take vacation, so they have full vacation banks. You know they they saved up some money because they weren't going out to to dinner or other events, so they don't need extra shifts to pay for vacation. So. We're, we're preaching right now that, you know, take, take some time and, and re, recharge this summer. Suresh, um, staffing issues for you, travelers, um, personal protective equipment issues during the peak? Oh. Yeah, I think that um, we were blessed to not have PP uh, issues. Um, we, uh, we had to use the re-sterilization initially. Um, but uh, pretty quickly inventory caught up. We didn't necessarily pay a fair market price to have all the PPE, but uh, uh, ultimately we had it. And I think that it, it was it was a relative non-issue for us. Um, I think that in terms of workplace safety, the, the main challenge that we have is that we have some older facilities that weren't really made for social distancing and mm-hmm. um, weren't able to maintain the kind of airflow and those kinds of things that we would consider optimal now learning from the pandemic. So that continues to be an ongoing improvement. How do you accomplish the right kind of distancing in facilities that weren't really um, uh, designed for that? Uh, but we overall feel like we've we've been able to uh, do a good job. In terms of staffing, um, we, uh, we, we had and continue to have pretty significant challenges until this calendar year. Um, during the um, uh, during the peak of the pandemic, we had to bring in agency and other staff. We kept the agency around, not because we needed them, but just to make sure that our regular staff got uh, enough of a vacation. 
um, to uh, continue to deal with fatigue. So um, we've kept agency around for three to four months uh, more than we would need simply for vacations um, to make sure that everyone can take it when they want. However, for us, we did have a challenge. Um, uh, we didn't have a higher attrition rate during the pandemic, but we had a much lower new hiring rate. So mm -hmm. we had the least number of new colleagues join us during the pandemic than we've had in recorded history. And that was leading to, to vacancy because at a certain level, you have attrition just through natural means, people leaving the state, people retiring, some of those things. And yet we were unable to um, fill positions as well um, during the during the pandemic. So staffing was definitely an issue. It certainly exacerbated our staff fatigue as it created less staff flexibility for us. Uh, but we we believe there's a light at the end of the tunnel and we've started moving towards that light now. And so I think that uh, we hope some of those issues are behind us, but, but like Kevin brought up, uh, the fatigue issue is still really front and center. And I think we, we, uh, we have the physical aspect, but I also think there's a mental health aspect of it that is going to take a year or two uh, yeah. to, to really get past. And I, I would say that uh, uh, we're really thinking about what we can do from an overall wellness and burnout standpoint. So recognizing this burnout, um, it's not just in frontline workers, it's in the population at large. Tell me, are you requiring your people to wear masks? Are you requiring visitors to wear masks? What's the policy uh, at the University of Pennsylvania Health System right now with regard to masks, both for visitors and for that matter, what is your visitor policy right now? Um, and what are you requiring in terms of your staff? So, um, well, first of all, Larry, we, we put in the vaccine mandate. And we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But in terms of uh, uh, current protective equipment, anyone in, in a hospital building uh, needs to be masked at all times uh, and uh, our, our employees and visitors are been very compliant with that. Um, it, it's confusing out there because the city and the, the Commonwealth lifted the vaccine or I'm sorry, lifted the mask yes. mandate. We're saying you have to wear it. Um, but people, you know, they're, they're very compliant and we still maintain, you know, mass and sanitizer at all the public entrances and, and people are masked up and, and uh, the employees are doing a great job adhering to that. And, uh, particularly with the, the variants coming back again, you know, we, we want to maintain that. Um, you know, the, the mask thing is interesting, Kevin. Um, at many places, as you know, the flu vaccine is mandatory. And for those who chose not to take it, they had to wear a mask. No one wanted to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. So everybody tended to get the flu vaccine. Now, mask is, you know, part of the part of the day's uh, work. Suresh, tell me, what's the policy at the University of Iowa in terms of what you expect of your employees in terms of mask wearing, what you expect of visitors. Uh, have you changed your visitor, your visitation policy or can people come and visit their loved ones now? Um, so the masks are required for staff and patients and their visitors uh, 100% of the time. And um, I think folks understand that within a healthcare setting and our compliance is pretty high. Um, we have, we had very strict uh, visitor restrictions during the peak of the pandemic, where essentially, other than very limited visitation, uh, there were mostly no visitors associated with any of our uh, inpatient work or emergency room work or our clinic work. Now we've relaxed those restrictions and in many settings have ex uh, expanded visitation hours. However, uh, the safety issue for our staff and for 
our patients and visitors is our inability to socially distance in all of the settings of our health system. So we've had to maintain some visitor restrictions because it, patient rooms get too crowded, waiting rooms get too crowded. So uh, there are still visitor restrictions. It, 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 it's unfortunate because we know those visitors are an important part of the care process. Um, whether it's an admission or discharge, whether it's coming in to hear a difficult diagnosis or helping with a follow-up appointment, or even sitting in the emergency room, all of these are very meaningful interactions. They continue to be restricted at some level. We've been able to relax it every setting that we feel like the space can handle it. We've done it, but still it's a dissatisfier, both for our staff and for our, our patients. So that's there. Um, look, gentlemen, uh, this has really been incredibly impactful and illustrative. I thank all three of you for participating in this. It's really been um, really, I think, outstanding. Alvarez and Marcel, leadership, action, results.